well-being is is about our ability to connect in a in a powerful way to the world around us but also that world around us has to connect to us and allow us and support that process hence context is really important so a context that supports well-being is one that supports our ability our uh, meets our needs for connection in a sense Hi, everybody. Welcome to my Run Your Life podcast. And as always, I want to thank you for your time and energy and for tuning into any episode that you can. The whole idea behind my podcast series is to interview people from the world of education and beyond who strive for both personal and professional excellence in their life through their chosen field, whatever that field may be. I feel very lucky to have Dr. Helen Street on my show today. You'll learn a lot about Helen in today's show, but the main theme of the podcast today is all about well-being. And Helen is the author of a well-known book called Contextual Well-Being. This episode is very timely because many schools are now faced with the decision Do we go back to virtual teaching and learning? Is it going to be a hybrid model? Is it going to be face-to-face? And as information changes, the decisions that schools are making is also changing in regards to how they are going to deliver day-to-day learning for their students. And the whole world is caught up right now in this pandemic, of course, and With the pandemic has come spike levels of anxiety and worry and stress for all stakeholders involved in in education. So students, teachers, school leaders, and parents. So as new information comes in, schools are trying to make the very best decisions possible to ensure that quality teaching and learning stays in place. Yet the importance of well-being for teachers and students and school leaders and parents really needs to be focused on during this time. So as I said, this conversation with Helen will dive into those themes. So I just want to tell you a little bit about Helen before we start our conversation. Dr. Helen Street is one of Australia's most highly respected educators and has a genuine passion for educational reform and for challenging the status quo. She has become known as a powerful advocate for children's rights, as well as a pioneer in the support of learning engagement, motivation, and well-being in schools. Helen works with schools and colleges from more than 15 countries, including Australia, Southeast Asia, and Europe. She's also written four books, including Standing Without Shoes, which was co-authored with George Burns, and contains a foreword from His Holiness the Dalai Lama. Helen's book, Contextual Well-Being, Creating Positive Schools from the Inside Out, has been praised by leading educators around the world. And it's that book that we're really going to dive into in our discussion today. 
Helen is an honorary research fellow at the University of Melbourne and the founder and chair of the Positive Schools Initiative with Neil Porter. The Positive Schools Initiative includes the Positive Schools Conference Series, which can be found at positiveschools.com.au and Positive Schools Online, which can be found at positiveschools.com. And this will be launched in September 2020. It was a genuine pleasure to have this conversation with Helen today, and I really want to thank her for her time and energy and for sharing her insight and wisdom around the importance of better understanding contextual well-being and what schools can do to plant the seeds for all stakeholders to flourish in a very difficult time. Uh, one other thing I want to add just before we start the conversation is if you're interested to know more about Helen, you can hear her wonderful TEDx talk that she gave in Perth in 2019. You just jump on YouTube and do a search for Dr. Helen Street TEDx talk and you'll, you'll find it for sure. So with that, let's jump right into my discussion with Dr. Helen Street. Okay, everybody, I'd like to welcome uh, Dr. Helen Street on the show. And, and before I begin, Helen, I just want to Thank you in advance for, for your time and energy and for your willingness to be on my podcast to share your learning and the book that we're going to talk about, Contextual Wellbeing, today. And you have an extensive body of work that has really had a profound impact on the way schools frame and reframe what wellness and well-being truly means. So I really want to thank you for your time today, Helen. Thank you, Andy. It's a pleasure. So the listeners have already heard a little bit about you in the introduction, but just to kind of set the context for our conversation today, can you share a bit about you, your work, um, where you live, and anything you want people to know about you? Okay. Um, So I'm English, but um, for the last 20 years I've lived in Australia. So I live on the west coast of Australia in Perth. Um, which I think is actually the most isolated capital city in the world, which is a sort of positive right now, the first time ever. Um, I live with my partner of 20 years, Neil, and we have three children, um, three daughters, two teenagers and one preteen. So um, they're beautiful girls, but life is definitely like nailing jelly to a tree on some days. Um, And we live with our dog as well, the other male member of the family. Um, And, I've always been interested in psychology. I've always been interested in what makes people tick and how they think and how they see the world. And um, and in particular, I've been interested in social norms and the way that people um, have a sort of sense of reality that they don't question, that they will say, well, this is just the way the world is, when a lot of what we do doesn't, from a sort of more objective, rational point of view, necessarily make absolute sense I know for easy example that we would wear what we call pajamas when we're going to bed but we would be seen as odd if we wore them to the shopping center there's no reason why that should be odd other than it's social convention but yet we never question these things and, and that interests me in itself so I've always been interested in psychology but nonetheless I had sort of quite a very early career did various things from psychiatric nursing to a bit of accountancy which I wasn't so thrilled with Um, but ended up studying psychology at university, going on to do a PhD and becoming 
very interested in social psychology as that applies to mental health and well-being. So how does our perception and understanding of the world we're in, how does our motivations, how does our goal setting all impact on our well-being and our mental health? Um, and following my PhD, I uh, got a job initially in Queensland on the east coast of Australia, um, lecturing, and then moved to where I am now, worked full-time at the university and was particularly interested in looking at motivation and what drives people to set certain life goals and how that impacts on their vulnerability to poor mental health, depression and anxiety. And that work took me into schools about 15, 16 years ago. And there I started to really realise and become much more aware of um, what was happening in schools in terms of understandings of both motivation and also mental health. And, and really came to my attention that as much as schools, educators are deeply concerned for the well-being of their students and certainly want them to be highly motivated and engaged, their understanding of what that actually means and how to support it was scant at best. And there was an awful lot of programs, initiatives, ideas in schools that I didn't feel were grounded in good research or certainly not in up-to-date research, and some of which I think actually do more harm than good. So that sort of got me really interested in thinking, well, gosh, how can we better support education community and schools? I love working in a more real-world setting, so which I now do full-time, and to me that seems more meaningful and, and relevant. Um, so over the last 10 years, um, Neil and I have worked together and presented conferences around the world that tries to sort of bridge the gap between what we know clinically and academically with what actual practice in a way that's engaging and meaningful for, for people that come to those events. And I also carry out my own work as well, which is, is a lot of um, advocating for educational reform, um, a lot of pushing against the system and things that I feel... Um, don't support the majority of young people in an equitable way. So I feel that the systems we have in place work absolutely well for some, but certainly not for all, and education needs to be for all. So in a nutshell, that's that's who I am. Yeah. And there's so much... A long nutshell. <laughs> well, you know, there's so much there, though. You have such a great journey. And in 2019, you... Uh, did a great TEDx talk in Perth. Uh, that was 2019, correct? Um, 2018. 2018. It came out in 2019 online, though. Okay. Yeah. And I listened to the talk a couple times, and, and in that talk, you really share your own journey. And I think people who become very passionate uh, about um, the things that they do in life, personally and professionally, are, are very much rooted in early experiences in life. And in your TED Talk, you describe, yeah. you know, being a very diligent student, you were very academic, and that there was a point, I think, when you were 14 years old, you were very um, artistic as well. You, you were very passionate about the arts. And, and you talk about that loss of well-being within yourself when you were 14 years old and that kind of disconnect um, from yeah. your essence, you as an artist and doing the things you love. And, and I really see in your story that that next 10 years of your life from 14 to maybe the mid-20s truly shaped the, the path that you ended up on. So can you just talk about those years and what led to that disconnect and that loss of well-being and then how you started to um, develop 
a passion for psychology and well-being and wanting to know more about it. So really take yes. a dive into that to set the context further for your work. For sure. Well, I think, I think that time, that um, is, a, is a time of sort of self-exploration for most people. And I don't, I don't know if it sort of directly has driven me to where I am now, but it's certainly driven the passion that I have that, that's allowed me to move forward. And, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's absolutely true. I was very academic and, and art was my absolute passion and I sort of squashed my love of art and being more creative um, because I felt that, that, and I was encouraged to think that, that subjects such as maths and, and sort of like the more pure sciences, physics, chemistry, biology, would keep my options open and, and get me further in life, give me a better career pathway, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and, and I suppose I, I feel that that was particularly problematic for, for me in a sense, um, obviously partly because I wasn't doing something I, that allows me to easily feel connected to the world around me, which is to paint and, and to um, to be more involved in artistic pursuits. But it was also because it, it, it set in, in action a sort of an, um, a sense of being that was more about impression management and relying on external validation than, than finding an authentic voice within myself. And, and once you sort of get started on that pathway without us, especially if you don't really realise what's happening, then it becomes... Um, a pathway of diminishing returns and so so you have to sort of each time you need more validation and you need to sort of make more effort to manage that impression to keep enough feedback happening that allows you to feel that you have drive and motivation and ultimately it becomes exhausting um, even if the feedback is always good and 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 I feel that that happens a lot to kids that do really well but not in a pathway or for reasons that suit a more sort of authentic sense of themselves. So they're sort of, on paper, they look like they're connecting really well with the world around them, but internally you don't feel very connected, you feel more and more disconnected. Um, and and I think I think in some ways, I, I, I mean, that happened to me to, to a very great degree. And I definitely fell off the rails a bit in my early 20s and sort of um, became caught, sort of caught up in the whole sort of hippies, dropout student culture for a while. And I... And I and sometimes I'd, I'd think, especially when I was younger, I'd think, gosh, that was a waste of time. But I actually feel in some ways I was fortunate that I was challenged so much that it forced me to think, I've got to change direction. I've got to do something about this. Whereas um, I think for a lot of people. Can I ask you a question just about that? Is like, you know, that, that disconnect and when you say you fell off the rails during that time, what was your biggest learning though? Okay, interesting, yeah. Well, I think, I think a couple of things. So, um, I use the term falling off the rails as, as in sort of opting out of, of a sort of a conventional pathway. And, but at the same time, finding friends in a sort of more so subculture that people who were very accepting because they themselves had felt a bit like an outsider or were, were struggling in some way. And so my greatest learning was the importance of a sense of belonging and how vital that is for our well-being, and that, it is so fundamentally about feeling accepted for who you are in a sense that allows you to, to be vulnerable, but that vulnerability comes with a real strength behind it. So that was really, really important sort of learning over time. And some of those people I, I'm still say I was really, really close to today. Um, but also it was also a time of very much a lot of soul searching and looking and reading and trying to sort of look 
uh, Buddhism or um, Zen Buddhism or uh, various sort of different ways of thinking about self and the world to try and find something that fitted better with me. And that's when I was introduced to the work of Joseph Campbell, who I, I mention a lot now in, in my professional life. And I watched a series of interviews that he did quite famously that I think you can still access possibly online. And they absolutely changed my life. And they really, I think the thing that, I, that clicked with me more than anything else was that I suddenly realized that that well-being and meaning in life was not something that you search for and find, but rather it's about feeling alive, which is about finding things you connect to in the here and now. Yeah, that's that's beautiful. And Joseph Campbell was a big influence in my life as well. When I, I found his work, I had moved to Japan with my wife and um, I, I we had a stretch of years where we did a ton of reading. And it was during that time that I read a lot of his work and that really shaped me. And he was an extraordinary person, you know, an yeah, Olympian, yeah. a musician, an academic, a writer. And and his work is really, you know, really powerful. So I can see now, like, I have a much more um, understanding of how contextual well-being came about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. As you can see, it just shaped through your own personal narrative and that the ongoing story that you created for yourself was a search for well-being and to better understand what it meant, you know, which was, was different than what some people thought it was. So when you think about well-being, what did you used to think well-being uh, meant and what, based on your work and your learning and being a lifelong learner, what do you think well-being means now? Um, gosh, I, I guess sort of simplistically, I, I used to think it was it was a state of being, uh, well-being. Whereas now, I think it's more about doing, um, and I, and and maybe to to just sort of explain what I'm saying there a bit more. I, I used to feel it that I it's something that I could sort of search and find, and and as if as if I could meditate and find enlightenment in some way, and then I would become an enlightened being. And somehow everything would make sense to me and I would have this, I don't know, this sort of ethereal sort of wisdom and float through life. And, and I really came to realise that that certainly is not real for me. Um, it's more about understanding that I, that in a way you have to sort of put the whole notion of well-being aside and think how can I connect with my life in a meaningful way and that is about finding people that you feel connected to in a sense that you've, you have that sense of belonging and, and you feel like this is the raw me and these people, I, you know, we sort of have a love for people rather than they are on your to-do list because you feel you ought to have them as friends or ought to know them. Um, it's about doing things, the connecting. In, in. So I love art and I was, I was, that's a sort of just one way of communicating and expressing yourself and connecting. I love writing. It's another way. Um, dancing. Um, for many people, it might be music. It might just be talking. They're, so it might be the, the work they do in maths, it's science. There are so many different languages and ways of connecting, and it's finding what works best for you. And it's also about sense of place, though, as well, and the meaning you put on the space around you. So I realized that it was, it was about me building and getting out there and engaging with the world in ways that felt really authentic for me. And then, then you're operating with, as somebody with capacity and somebody, and for me, I, it makes me feel like I'm part of something bigger than myself. 
and and um and I guess I also sort of grappled a lot in my earlier life with the fact with our mortality with a sense of mortality and a feeling that you know we're all going to die what's the point and I think that again that's something that that every young person would would reflect on and consider and maybe middle-aged people as well and I think by feeling that you're part of something bigger than yourself it takes away that fear or certainly lessens and and it to into a manageable amount because it's not all about you. It's about the fact you're part of something so much bigger than yourself. What I appreciate about your work and everything you're saying, and, and I've done a lot of reading with Seligman and uh, Positive Psychology and his books, um, Flourish and Authentic Happiness, and then looking at self-determination theory by DC and Ryan. And so there, there's a lot of interwoven parts and in research that goes into your work, right? And when you think about um, the book itself, I'd love to just segue into that, but contextual well-being. Um, can you talk about um, the first ideas that you had for writing this book, uh, the writing process, uh, how long it took, and just anything you want to tell us about the journey of writing the book itself, and then we'll dive deeply into it. Sure. Well, I, I mean, you mentioned a few people there who, who are very interested in the world of well-being and well-being science. Um, I, I have to say I'm a massive fan of DC and Ryan's self-determination theory because I feel it's very much a social theory of well-being as much as it's a theory of motivation. I'm not such a big fan of Seligman's PERMA theory at all because I think it's very individualistic and um, doesn't necessarily apply across cultures and different groups of people so well. And it's in some ways it's... I don't know if dangerous is too too strong a word to use, but it puts so much emphasis on an individual taking responsibility for their own well-being that I think it's in danger of meaning that we ignore context. Mm-hmm. Um, I just wanted to, to say that, but, but in terms of my coming to write contextual well-being, um, I think that over the years that I've worked in well with, with um, thinking about and working on ideas of well-being and motivation in schools, that I've, I've covered lots of different topics that I've felt are important um, and sort of, or I thought, gosh, this is something that really needs addressing. Let's look at cohesion. That seemed like a big topic. But, uh, it's really important that we think about all these rewards and stickers that are happening in schools because when I first came across that, I'm thinking, oh, my God, what the hell is that about? This is not helpful. Let's think about that. Let's understand motivation. And, and over time, I was starting to think, what are the underlying threads that tie the different interests I have together the underlying messages that keep coming out and I think for me it was very much that um, that if we want to support young people I would, that we really need to to first of all take a step back and have an, a look again at what well-being is and from from that I, I, I wanted to establish and at least put out there a much more sort of um, a socially constructed definition of well-being that then starts to shift the way we would think to support well-being in ourselves as well as young people in schools and that was to look from a more contextual viewpoint as opposed to somehow thinking we are separate to the world and it, and it's it's about our skill set or our attitudes or sure how we interact with the world but something all within from comes from within ourselves so so I guess I, I wanted to shift ideas of well-being from from within the individual to the spaces between us 
And how did you structure your, so it's one thing to have the ideas in your head about what you want to write about, but in putting this book together, it flows so nicely and it, you weave in there many personal stories, but also uh, research. So it's, it's a, um, it's a nicely paced book that flows well. So just talk about idea to implementation and actually like structuring your writing. So what was that process like and how long did that take? Uh, that's a, oh, that's a, no one's asked me that before. So it's an interesting question, but thank you for saying that. Um, I, I must say I'm a huge fan of the spreadsheet. So I, and I have notebooks and I come from the generation of paper and pens. So I still somebody who likes to think with a pen in my hand. So it comes from writing lots of notes about different things that I'm interested in and then putting all those topics together and then sitting and thinking about what order they might go well in to, to make for a story. Um, I knew that I really wanted to, I, I felt really angry, I suppose, and upset about a lot of the wellbeing programs that were being adopted by schools, possibly because of their lack of, of evidence behind them or because I felt that they were, um, they were embedded um, within a really um, poor understandings of motivation or engagement. So they might have been all sort of set with good intentions, but they, they just, there was no way they were going to work well. I, at the same time, I didn't want it to be just a sort of really angry, negative book about all the things I didn't like in the educational world, but rather I wanted it to be something that, that people felt was, was engaging in a sort of positive, building on what works, sort of more, um, uh, yeah, more in terms of more growth, I suppose, so that I've really learned over time that um, it does not, you're not going to create positive change in, in any group or institution if you tell people what they've done wrong and what you don't like you know you 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 might feel that you've expressed yourself but you're not necessarily going to be heard and you're going to and even if people do hear you they're just going to feel drained by that because uh, all change comes from people and so really I wanted to make sure that overall the book had a sense of bringing people on board uh, with a certain energy that didn't make people feel defensive or bad, but had a sense of, you know, this is about an, um, an appreciative approach to well-being. So I hope that it starts, although it starts off quite critical, and I, and I do say a bit about what I, do, I don't like and I think it's not working, that we then start to move and the bulk of the book is saying, is talking about, well, what is the flip side of that? What, what, what would well-being actually look like if we were creating that in schools? So hence, rather than trying to focus too much on all of the extrinsic validation in schools and the highly competitive nature and all the things that I could actually talk about indefinitely, I was hoping to touch on those and then think, well, what is the opposite of that? And that's about things like incorporating self-determination theory and understanding needs and how do we support young people's needs in context? Um, how do we build cohesion? How do we create a sense of agency for young people? Um, how do we build collaboration so that the, the, a lot of the things that I have issue with become redundant rather than the actual focus that uh, and then change seems like something that we're growing and building and because ultimately you, you know the hope for the book is that it leads to ongoing real change uh, rather than just being an opinion piece and the dialogue needed and I think 
the discussions that need to take place in order to create this change that you describe in the book that's so necessary to build more well-being in schools. And when you were sharing your, your story, I was thinking about parts of your book. And when I had done consulting and I was working with different schools, you know, full-time flying to different countries, I had been uh, one week in one school, one week in another school. And both schools um, claimed before I went there that they embodied mindfulness and that mindfulness was a part of everything that they do. In the one school, the very first day that I was there, coming in 8 a.m., there was a 10-minute moment of silence for the whole school. And there was a, a that mindful moment, and then there was a circle time, even with some of the leaders in the school, to talk their way through what they wanted the day to look like and to have important conversations and to listen to one another and to embed mindfulness in the culture of the school. And I was so impressed because it was the first time I had ever seen an entire school stop to not do mindfulness, but embody what mindfulness means. To be mindful, yeah. Mindful. And the other school claimed that they were a mindful school, but it was all in isolation. And they were supposed mm. to have these routines in place in the morning where teachers would talk about being mindful and, and do these activities with the kids, but it was hit and miss. Some, some teachers weren't doing it, some were. So it was like happening in silos. So Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I, I think if you look, I totally agree. If you look in a lot of schools, it's, there'll always be little pockets where things are going really well. Um, and there's often a real simplification of ideas as well that, that, that um, minimalizes them or means that they just don't seem to relate to the reality of young people's experience of life and therefore they become meaningless in, the, in themselves. I think mindfulness is actually a great example. Um, how many well-meaning teachers out there are, are doing their sort of 10-minute mindfulness um, practice without really thinking about mindfulness beyond an idea of it being about focusing your attention. And there's so much more than that. And it has to be bringing, coming to that place with, with an attention, with an open heart and a, and a, and, and a thinking in a, in, a, in a sort of very sort of supportive and a positive way. It's not just being present. Um, young people have to have buy-in to that idea. I, I think... Um, Coming from someone who used to sort of do some clinical work as well, it sort of really struck me when I first came into contact with all these well-being programs in schools, how there was um, a sense of how you know you have a covert audience all the time. You, 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 there's no opportunity for students to opt in or out. It's just a sense of okay, we're going to teach you this today, and yet in, in a therapeutic setting, you don't you you know immediately you're in. You've got to get buy-in from somebody. You've got to get that person to actually want to be there and, and to have some sense of why that might be important and what they might take away from that. Um, yeah, yeah. So so certainly I think with psychology, there are so many phrases and words and concepts that we use in, in daily life, in daily language, that, there's, that it's easy to have um, a simplified understanding of something that then no longer becomes so useful and it's also to, easy to just assume we all know that we're talking about the same thing when we're not. Um, and then you get these sort of like things like grit. I mean, what the hell is grit? You know, it, it's a sort of like 
it's almost like it sounds like a good word, but really we're talking about passion and perseverance, aren't we? And do we really need to come up with this idea of grit? Well, growth mindset, there's another one. People think growth mindset is really just saying well done for effort instead of well done for outcomes, and there's not at all. Um, yeah, so I'm going off at a slight tangent there, but I, I totally understand what you're saying about mindfulness and, and the two different all, schools. Yeah, and these are the ideas embedded within your work that I really want to bring out. And the one concept that I was really intrigued by and curious about and really wanting to know more about, because I, I understand it, but I thought in the podcast with you, I want to ask you this question so that I can I can better understand it. And you talk about the space between, Right. You talk about this, the individual well-being, but the environment. And it's not that the individual well-being is not important because it is, but it's more about the space between. So in my head, I, I, I have an understanding of mean, but I really want you to dive into to that now. So educators listening to this can truly understand what you mean by that and what they might begin to focus on to um work on that space between okay so I guess I guess it sort of initially started for me with an interest in um when I was in my mid-20s on I became very interested in Buddhism and very much involved with the Western Buddhist order in in the UK and um this uh, the idea of of no form without emptiness no emptiness without form um really made me sort of ponder on the fact that um you look at a photo of somebody and you see the person rather than the space around them but the space around them sort of makes the shape of them so both are required and both are the same in in a way um and I guess that sort of pondering on that idea led me to sort of ponder a lot on on how to conceptualize and think about and then express ideas of well-being in a more social sense and and I what I'm trying to say with the spaces between us is that we are who we are, not not because um, because of the way that we connect with the environment around us. So everything uh, um, about us, in terms of our identity, our preferences, our uh, the language we speak, the way we look, how we dress, everything we do, comes from the sum of all the experiences that we have, and. Absolutely, we're all born with different temperaments, with different um, leanings towards different ways of connecting and interacting with the world. But nonetheless, the sort of it's the outcomes of those experiences that create our sense of who we are, give us a sense of our identity. And and if we have a, a, a many strong connections, then that that sort of that space between us, that glue that binds us to to the world around us, is 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 strong and we have a strong sense of who we are um if we if we lose some aspect if we lose something really important to us um like say you know you lose a loved one uh, that the grief that you experience um i believe is is much stronger is much is much greater if you the more connected that you were to that person somebody said to me after i lost my father uh, which was a great loss for me that um that grief is an extension of loving someone. And I feel that that is so, so true. When you have to sort of withdraw and regroup and redefine yourself. And and so much of, of that person was their connection to you as you were that connection to them. Hence, we redefine ourselves in a different world. Hence, 
resiliency comes when we are strongly connected in lots of different ways. So when we lose something really important, we still have a sense of our connection to the world. That space between us is still uh, filled with that sort of with, with social glue that binds us. So well-being is, is about our ability to connect in a, in a powerful way to the world around us. But also that world around us has to connect to us and allow us and support that process. Hence, context is really important. So a context that supports well-being is one that supports our ability, our, uh, meets our needs for connection in a sense. So I, I've heard people that I know say, I'm an introvert. I don't need to connect with anybody. I'm fine on my own. And I sometimes feel that that's, I want to believe that that's not true. I used to think I was an extrovert, but I realized through better understanding myself that I, I'm more of an introvert. Sorry, you can hear my dog barking. That's okay. <laughs> my son for the first time today. So He's trying I'll, to connect with you. Your dog is trying to connect. <laughs> where was I? I lost my train of thought with the dog. About uh, introverts and extroverts. And so the introvert and extrovert. So... I really believe that even as an introvert, I deeply connect with, with people um, that matter to me, that I have a common connection with, and I, I truly need them. So yeah. the introverts still do need that social connection. So can you just talk about that? Um, and Yeah, well, I think firstly, I mean, there's, a, there's so many things within that. I think that, that we know it's about connecting to social context. That's important. And people are part of the context. But everything that, you know, the, the norms by, we, by which we live by, the, the values that drive us, the, the rules that we follow in our societies, even the physical environment, which is determined by people, even the natural environment is only there because people have said it can stay or have nurtured it. Um, so we can connect with our social context in, in more ways than, than with, with direct relationships with other people. I think that that's important and for some some of us um you might you know you might be really connected say with with your work or you might really connect it with a particular hobby or your music or whatever it might be and and that's a really important way of you feeling part of the social context and and having your well-being um with somebody else they might be a really gregarious person who gets most of their context from there are many relationships with lots of other people. So that there are definitely differences and no one is right or wrong over the other. I, I have to say on a sideline there that I do feel that schools, because of their very nature, because they're full of so many people, most schools anyway, um, then there there is a sort of um, a sense that it's better to be extroverted than introverted. And I feel that that is so not true, that they're just differences. But unfortunately, in the way that we have structured our education system, um, a lot of people who are naturally more extroverted have got a, a bit of an added advantage there. And, and the whole um, 2020, um, taking people and, and, and keeping them at home and seeing how absolutely it's been tough um, for so many people, but it's interesting to see how quite a few of the more introverted kids have actually thrived a bit more by being, not having all this social complexity and, and, and so many people around them all the time. But having said all that, I also think that absolutely, whether you're introverted or extroverted, you need, you need relationships with other people. But really for all of us, it's, we have three or four key people in our lives 
who um, my my partner, Neil, would say are the bury the body people. He would say that if it's 2 a.m., you could phone that person up and say, I accidentally killed someone, and they'd come over and they'd help you out. They're just there for you. And they're the people you can bear your soul to, you can sort of, you can boast to when things go well and you can complain to when they go badly. So in that sense, they're the people you're probably most authentically you with. And those relationships really, really count. Um, in terms of your identity and who you are. They're the ones that really matter. Whether you're a gregarious person that likes to have hundreds of other people that you know in your social world, that's not quite the same as being connected to hundreds of other people. You've still probably just got those three or four people that really, really matter. Yeah, yeah, that's. I'm, I'm glad you you um, kind of took a dive into that and explained that further. And in, in your book, you break the book down into four um, areas of, I want to say importance, but four areas people in our uh, community, immediate community, the physical space, uh, the policies and practices, and social norms, right? Yes. Can you just give us a glimpse into each of those areas? And then I want to ask you to really talk about in this trying, very difficult time where some schools are are a hybrid model of of teaching and learning, some are still distant, some are face-to-face, there's higher levels of anxiety being face-to-face with with teachers um, and students worried about COVID, but yeah, so just explain those four areas, people in the community, physical space, policies and practices, social norms, and then we'll go into what schools can now do to really better address well-being given the, the pandemic and the impact it's had. Sure. Well, those four domains of context are really I thought that if I just talk generally about social context, then it starts to sound like a theory of everything really um so they're not they're artificial way of dividing the context because everything is very much interrelated but so really for ease of understanding and to allow us to think more clearly about how we focus on creating healthy context I thought well I'll sort of divide it up into what I feel are, are quite the most distinct four areas so when we talk about people obviously the people around us um have a huge impact on helping us to create that sense of who we are, identity, um, our, our well-being, the, um, whether it's direct relationships with one or two people or our relationship with a group of people. Um, so for, for a child in a classroom, it would be about their relationships with their key friends, with the teacher, that's incredibly important, but also about their sense of, of um, belonging to the class as a whole. Um, when we're talking about policy and practice, we're talking about how the the, the, the rules of the, of the community you're in, how they impact on you in terms of offering you opportunity to have your needs fulfilled. Um, and so, for example, let's think about um, you might have homework as a policy and a common practice in many, many schools, um, d- despite the fact that there is very, very little um, research support for the value of homework, certainly in primary schools, in creating any effective learning outcomes still. It's, it's a policy that's very much in place. So, and, and, then, and I think that to, to start to think about, well, is this a good idea or not, if you think about, how, well, how is that impacting on young people in terms of, say, firstly, helping them feel like they've got a sense of agency, that they are a valuable member of the community and that they've got a sense of competency and does it do that in an equitable way? And, and the answer is pretty, I think, 
definitely loudly, screamingly loudly, no, because it's a really inequitable practice. And yes, homework might well help some kids become more independent learners and kids that are uh, got supportive families and a space to do their homework and lots of books around them, they might benefit from doing extra work at home, absolutely. But then there's going to be other kids who are looking after sick relatives or um, or might have a job or they're in a chaotic environment or there's not a book in the house or they, they uh, maybe have a learning difficulty and they find it really hard to work independently, whatever reason. And then they are going to undoubtedly find it much harder to complete that homework and have a lower sense of competency the homework doesn't suit them and their situation and their their agency is compromised their autonomy is compromised and their their sense of belonging is compromised and um so we can start to see how policy and practice from that sort of quite simplistic example but um whether it's classroom management behavior management handing out rewards um having to participate in the sports carnival, whatever it might be, how it, it sometimes meets young people's needs and sometimes doesn't, sometimes it's inequitable, sometimes it's very equitable. But I feel that it, that we need to examine and re-examine our policy and practice rather than thinking that's just the way it is or that's tradition or, um, or hey, it's great because it's great for some kids but not all. Um, and then social norms so social norms really are the true guides of our behavior so as much as the policy and practice might be the sort of written down overt voiced rules of our societies and our schools um it's the social norms that are the true guides of our behavior so i think i might i use honesty as as a example in the book and if we, and that's a you know it's a good example because i think that the majority of schools would say that they wanted to support honesty as a norm as a as a, as a value driving behavior within their um, school environment and yet the, uh, so many of the social norms of that environment might go against that and they're the true drivers of behavior so um, if, if everybody I don't know locks up all their possessions at, and um, in their lockers and the classroom doors get locked and um and then you're starting to sort of encourage a social norm, a sense that actually we can't really trust people here. And, and that will be the true guide of, of how honest people behave and how, tr- how honest they believe the environment to be, how, how, tr- how trusting they are of each other. So I think it's really important to sort of unpack and look at what the reality is in terms of people's social norms. And then finally, that sense of place, which I think doesn't, doesn't get a huge amount of attention. So I think that um, when it comes to the basics, uh, absolutely things like um, good lighting and ventilation and comfortable seating, all these things absolutely make a difference. But beyond that, the, the walls have have messages on them. Um, so the, the things we choose to decorate our buildings with, the things we give priority to, they have a huge impact on talking to the reality of the world in which we find ourselves. So... And, and that impact is so powerful in a way because it's not spoken. So it influences us at a sort of by stealth in a really powerful way. Hence, we might walk into a room and we might think, well, I've been told it's safe or I've been told that this is what's happening, but it doesn't feel safe or it feels different or the vibe 
might say that nowadays is um, is not good here, or it is good here. And where is those where are those perceptions come from? Often from those sort of messages that we're not really consciously aware of that are all feeding into our sense of what this reality is about. And I think we again we need to take a step back and say, well, are we creating a, a, a sense of place? A sort of are we giving meaning to our spaces and making them into places? that are equitable and supporting the needs, the needs of young people in terms of their autonomy, their relatedness, their competency, their sense of equity, so that they can feel connected and therefore have a sense of their wholeness and well-being. One example I use all the time, um, because it's such an easy one, and I see it again and again and again, is uh, those sort of trophy cabinets in the reception of schools. So you walk into the school, and they say, we value everybody here equally. And the first thing you see is that it seems that some kids are actually valued more than others. You know, it's a bit animal farm-like, to be honest, isn't it? So, and I think you, you need to make sure that your, that your place actually reflects the values, the true values that you want to be um, expressed so that the social norms come from the values and not from some other reality. Yeah, and what comes to mind is you, you will often go into classrooms and you, you'll see learning values on the wall, a poster of learning values or core values, um, but they're just posters on the wall. You know, they're just decoration. And they... these. Well, I, I, I'll just interrupt you there because I think they, they are more than decoration. I think the words do count, but they only, ca- they only count if they're, if they're then supporting what actually goes on in terms of the behavior within the school and other messages so there's no point in having the big trophy cabinet on the entrance and all the sort of honors boards and the school leaders and the merit cards and the prizes and then having a big poster that says uh, everybody counts or you know we really value everyone because that that becomes that poster's message is is just lost mm-hmm. in everything else that's happening in the environment. But sure, if if you walk into the school and there's sort of community collage and the entrance and photos and there's a sense of collaboration and people meeting their needs, and then you have a poster that says everybody counts, then you think, yeah, absolutely, that's a really powerful statement suddenly because it is um, is really just reflecting what the reality of the world around. Yeah. Hence the sort of, if you look at the whole self-esteem movement of the 1970s, which is quite a fascinating time and I really feel should be compulsory uh, to understand and look at, look at how that operated and what happened and how it failed for all people, in, all educators interested in supporting wellbeing nowadays. Um, but obviously there was a lot of posters telling everyone how great they were, but those messages were just futile they were meaningless weren't they because the, the reality was the whole uh the whole system was was built on this idea that you could somehow boost somebody's self-esteem by giving them a gold pen or something you you can feel when the the values do come alive like you say and as opposed to just being on the wall and oftentimes these it's great to see teachers have discussions with students and and they co-construct what that learning space looks like. So it's not just teacher driven, it's co-constructed with students yes. and, yes. and buy in and, and that living those values and living what's agreed on in the classroom on a daily basis makes everybody 
feel psychologically and emotionally safe in that space and feel as though yeah and you certainly have ownership over that space because after all it's an extension of you isn't it really because it's um as we talked about sort of the well-being being in the sort of the spaces between us that's that's part of our identity um so to so young people need to feel they have some ownership over that space and um and it's meaningful for them and 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 that's sort of a real real call to say we have to be so cautious of architectural determinism and and sort of big shiny buildings that um that don't necessarily have buy-in from the users of those buildings and and you know if you cast your mind back to the first time open plan classrooms was thought to be a great idea and and people and teachers were just like oh I can't work in this environment it's just so noisy and um I I think of a, a school that I know quite well um, this side of the world um, that spent millions and millions of dollars on a big well-being centre fairly recently. You have to walk across the school oval to go to the um, well-being centre if you want to see a psychologist and nobody wants to be seen walking across the oval. And I'm thinking, you didn't think that through at all. Um, yes, yes, it's really important to make sure the users of any space have a say in how it becomes a place. All right. I'd love for you to share some uh, strategies or, or ideas for schools that are facing this very difficult time. Right? Yeah. Before we hit record, I said one of our um, big rocks here this year is social and emotional wellness. So what do some schools need to let go of, not throw away, but just kind of let go of during this time to better focus on the social and emotional? So what is your advice to schools? What can they start with and, and what can they do to really plant those seeds uh, of social and emotional wellness and, and well-being? What's your advice there? Well, I, th- I think um, to set that scene, I think we have to start off by thinking we have to be aware that we're playing the long game in education. So it's about trying in that sense to keep perspective and to think. It's about making sure that we focus on supporting the um, aspects of education um, social and emotional learning that are going to help everyone, help young people to play the long game in terms of leading their life well and, and being engaged in learning for that longer term. So to, putting that to one side, I, I feel it's really important to acknowledge that it's a really tough year and it's um, for everybody and it's okay to be upset about that and to feel um, stressed about that and really overwhelmed at, at, about that at times and to feel that your capacity is diminished. It's also within that understanding, I think it's important to it, to realise that when we are faced with lots of novelty and novel stimuli and, and things happening that are, I mean, the word unprecedented has been used in an unprecedented amount of times, um, but nonetheless, we're in unprecedented times and um, and that is in itself exhausting to, to have all that novelty all the time and so our capacity is going to be diminished. It's also um, distorts our sense of time, I think. So my 13-year-old my said to me the other day, my goodness, this is the longest, quickest year ever. And I thought, yeah, that's exactly right. <laughs> it's sort of, you know, it's like the days are blurred in some sense. I can't believe we're already, um, you know, this far through the year. But in another sense, it seems to be totally endless, doesn't it? And so um, it, it, by understanding that, we can realise actually, you know, reality is it, it's been a really tough time, but it's only been a few months. And really, I feel that you could take 
a child out of almost any year of school for a few months and they would still ultimately be fine. Mm -hmm. And um, as long as they can regain and re-enter their education with um, a a sense of of motivation and wanting to be engaged in that process, uh, a sense of hope for their future. And so that immediately tells us that um, these are some of the things that we need to focus on right now. I think we need to not panic if we're not getting through uh, the curriculum. Um, you know, it, it doesn't matter too much. And, and the reality is that as you go through your school years, there, maths is a subject you build on, and I think English to some degree, absolutely. But most other subjects are about topics that you revisit and you come back to. And, and it's okay if you didn't get all of that topic done or you missed it. What's more important is supporting young people in helping them to have perspective. To, and that's a, a also about focusing on what's within your control and keeping, um, keeping boundaries on how you spend your time and what you do, making sure that people aren't being flooded with the news 24-7. Uh, another thing that tends to happen when we deal with novel situations is that we don't, they're moving so quickly, we don't know where to put the boundaries. And so they become all encompassing. And we, we saw that to some degree with, with mobile phones, you know, hence everybody is sort of up in arms about how much time we should be spending online because it's all happened so quickly. Was 2020 has happened so, so quickly. Um, it's very easy to get caught up in, in, in looking at the news 24-7. We need to put boundaries around that. Um, so helping young people to understand what's going on, why they might feel tired all the time or having trouble sleeping, having less capacity, um, to help them to have a sense of hope about future possibilities. And even if you're in the final year of school and, you, and um, you're not getting the grades that you want to get or you didn't get to do your exams and your estimated grades aren't what you feel that you could have got or you feel you could have done so much more, I think it's really important to try and understand that the whole world is aware of what's happening and universities are very aware of what's happening. Employers are very aware of what's happening and it's not going to stand against you. So I feel that that helping young people, especially those in those final years to really have that perspective and realize that it's okay. You can still be okay and you can still achieve your goals and go in different directions and things will open up for you. Um, is, is absolutely vitally important. Um, I also think it's really, really important that we understand that to try and communicate with each other on things like Zoom um, or my teams, what, whatever platform you're using, is far more exhausting and effortful than being in the same room as someone. I mean, thank goodness we do have this technology in this situation. Absolutely so grateful for it. I mean, here we are talking today because of it. Um, but nonetheless, it's far more effortful because you're not, you're having to focus on what someone says far more. You're having far less cues in your environment to follow and pick up on the conversation. Whereas if you're in the same room as someone, you immediately have got all this sort of extra input into the conversation that allows you to have more capacity with that conversation. And so let's be really careful, especially when it comes to younger students, that we don't demand too much of their time and attention online. But rather, especially with younger kids, let's understand that education doesn't just happen at school in terms of of theory and topics it's about living life and and being able to find resilience and survive the whole of 2020 is in itself educationally beneficial the younger kids just sort of like doing projects at home or helping mum with dinner is in itself educational 
but for older students learning about themselves and reflecting and thinking about how they are at home or not at home maybe um, gives them a chance to think about impression management and what that means and what it's like suddenly to um, be in a very different situation, different context and how that impacts on them. Those sort of reflections are insightful and allow them to grow and that is education in itself and maybe more valuable at this point in time. But sort of the, the final thing I'll say, though, I think it's whatever you, you decide to do and to focus on to try and support yourself and the people that you're trying to um, support in an online world of learning, um, ask, ask people what they think and how they're doing and, and what's happening for them. So, um, and, and you don't have to just ask about the bad stuff, ask about the good stuff as well. You know, what's, what's worked well for you? What's nice about this? Um, and um for example I'm finding I quite like the fact that I get to see lots of people's homes when I talk to them now and I'm always thinking oh that's it more interesting than your office and seeing what painting you've got on the wall or what's behind you or um it's been nice for me to to have time to um sit and reflect about what I want to do next in in my life I mean you know I've lost a huge amount of work and that was really tough but I'm not minimalizing that but where the, when there's disruption and forced change, it does force us to reflect and it forces contemplation. And that can be a positive thing too. Yeah, lots of lots of really great things you, you say there and, and really sound advice. And you, you talk about that emotional check-in and the emotional check-in doesn't have to be doom and gloom. And this no. is, it can be, it can be perceived as, oh no, it's always going to be heavy. If we do this emotional check-in, it's always going to be this sense of heaviness. But there can be some really good things happening. And when we give people that chance to share and do an emotional check-in and they're having a great week and they've had successes, just them explaining that to others lifts, can lift the mood of the class or can, can uh, add more uh, light, uh, a light mood. Yes, and yeah, absolutely. As can like finding the humor in situations, you know. And I think, I think a lot of people... Um, lent on humour. I mean, there were so many funny memes and things coming out when people first started to sort of feel they were in some sort of lockdown and restrictions were enforced. I, I, it's interesting that when people who have come, came out of that and now they've gone back into that, um, it seems less funny second time round, doesn't it? But um, <laughs> and certainly that's in part to do with it. It doesn't seem like novelty value or time out of high-pressured life. It suddenly feels like that you know that this is wearing now. This is really tiring now. But um, the more that we can do to find the humour in that, and and humour comes from shared experiences, doesn't it? Um, I was I was as when, whenever I look at anything in life, there's a bit of me that's sort of patient, taking part, and there's other bit of me that's observing. Why am I reacting like that to this situation? And I think the bit of me that's observing that looks at why I find some of those memes that came out hilariously funny uh, was probably because they were keying into something in me that I hadn't expressed that I was sort of doing, you know, um, whether it's suddenly going from coffee time to wine time on week three and finding that whole idea very funny because I'm like, yes, oh gosh, it wasn't just me. I thought everyone else was being all productive, but actually they're not, you know, um, so I, th I think, yeah, those shared experiences can, can make us smile and feel reassured, and that in itself is, is a really, really helpful thing to do, yeah. 
I just want to ask you about, because sometimes leadership teams, so I just want to ask you this question and segue into the end of the podcast and, and know where people can find your book and find you if they want to know more about your book and your work. But sometimes leadership teams in schools, and I've seen this, um, often don't take care of themselves. And the focus is so much on students and student learning, yeah. but they fail to look after themselves. So what is your advice to leadership teams during this time? and what it is they need to do to, to really become more aware of their own levels of well-being and how this pandemic might be impacting them negatively. But, uh, yeah, just what's your, what's your advice there? Yeah, well, I think, I think it, the, it's, it's a tough world for, for everyone, but it, it, it is certainly educators. It's incredibly tough, and there's been so many changes. You know, we're online, we're offline, we're in school, we're out of school, um, dealing with your own children in your own home situation as well as trying to support the, the children in your classes. Um, so I think that, that that awareness that it's tough is, again, important and know that, that you have to... Prioritising your own well-being is not some add-on luxury that you should... It, it actually is essential because you need to be a good role model. You need to sort of, like, present yourself in a way that is authentically showing resilience and looking after yourself because of that that is going to lead the young people that you're trying to look after into looking after themselves. So know that you're not um, you're not being frivolous or, or selfish by taking care of yourself. I, I think that possibly the, the most important things that school leaders can say to their teams at this point in time is, is maybe the most important thing of all is to say you're doing enough. Yeah. No, whatever that might be, you're you're doing enough. Yeah, yeah. And, it's okay. You're doing enough, and yeah. that and just let that sit. Um, and and within that, so many other things. You know, you focus on what's within your control. You, um, we talked before about having those key relationships in your life, and they're the ones that we need to focus on now. So if you can't go out, it might be more online. But try and focus on deepening the relationships, those three or four relationships that really matter. Don't worry so much about the other ones. Focus on what's within your control. Take time out. And if you're missing, you know, like a, if, you're, if you're missing other places, think about what is the meaning, the association with those other places that I'm really, really missing. And how can I try and create some of that meaning right here and now? How can I make sure that I'm making the most of the time that I have? You know, it's a bit of like that old adage, isn't it? If you can't be with the ones you love, love the ones you're with. And, and it's to try and take some of that with you. But, yeah, but ultimately, we're, we're all doing enough. We're doing the best we can. And, and I think it's just important to, again, create a space to have those discussions on leadership teams to say, how are we going to address our own well-being and how are we going to prioritize this during this time and not feel selfish and, and build time into the agenda to have the discussions needed to focus on these things because that will, I think, lead to more cohesion amongst the leadership team and, and they'll yes. feel more connected, right? Yes, absolutely, absolutely. Again, and they'll have a sense that they have a voice, they're heard. And, and in, in it's, as soon as it's sort of like someone says it's okay, you know, you're fine and, and we're all different, but some people are wanting to be manically busy during this time. Other people feel a bit more frozen with it and, and, and that's okay. And I think as soon as you sort of feel you have permission to, to be dealing with it in your own way, immediately it becomes a little bit easier, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, for sure. So, Helen, in my hand I have your book, um, Contextual Wellbeing, 
Creating Positive Schools from the Inside Out. As I said, it's, it's a wonderful book, and I think every school needs to get their hands on it and distribute <laughs> to teachers and, and leaders and to, to really dive into it because there's so much good stuff in here. So where can people find your book? Um, well, thank you for that, Andy. And, and people can find it on Amazon, and they can also find it on my website, contextualwellbeing.com.au. And also, um, so at the moment, I, I run a series of conferences in Southeast Asia and around Australia called the Positive Schools Conferences. And during this time, and we hope moving forward, we're setting up positiveschools.com, which will be um, basically a, um, an online professional development library filled with talks and conversations that I'm having with um with more than 50 of our Positive Schools presenters from, from the present and the past and other people who work in, in the area of supporting well-being in schools. And so that's um, a great opportunity for, for people to find a whole wealth of information from, from various people in different forms and, and to watch it um, in the time that they have or to, to share it with each other. So I'm, I'm really hoping that people will tap into that. Um, if they want specifically to talk to me about contextual well-being, then they can certainly um, visit contextualwellbeing.com.au or they can contact me via the University of Western Australia where I have an honorary position. So I'm still very much reachable via the University of Western Australia as well. Okay. And do you have a social media presence, Twitter or Instagram? Or? Oh, yes. I'm, I'm, I always forget to mention it. So I'm on Twitter <laughs> at Dr. Helen Street and LinkedIn. Um, I think that's about it, really. And I have email. Do people still use that? But yes, I do have my email as well. And I'm actually very good at responding to my emails. So people are welcome to email me and they can find my email again through going through the uh, UWA, the University of Western Australia website. Okay, great. I'm going to include that all, all in the uh, show notes. And I'm just going to close off the, the show here. And if we can just have one or two minutes just to have a quick chat before we finish the call. But uh, thank you very much for your time, Bob. Thank you so much, Andy. I've enjoyed it. Thank you. So everybody, thank you very much for listening to this episode with Dr. Helen Street, and I hope you come back to listen to future episodes. Andy Vasily.